0: You are listening to SPN, the Sports Podcasting Network. Five Rings Podcast, your weekly amateur sports and Olympic sports show with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramie. And now, without further ado, here's Dwayne Rollins.
1: And welcome to the Five Rings Podcast. I'm Dwayne Rollins. A week earlier than we said it was going to be, I don't know whether we're going to go back to weekly now, Kevin, but it is weekly for now. I'm Dwayne Rollins, Kevin Laramie. He joins me as always. How you doing, Kevin?
0: I am doing great, Dwayne. Uh, better than a lot of tennis players with great big news. One of the reasons why we're doing a show today and to, uh Talk about Game Set Podcast, the newest addition to the sports podcasting network hosted by yours truly. And uh, I have to tell you, Dwayne, uh, I love the logo. It's my favorite single thing I've ever did in my life, I think. But outside of that, just the Australian Open started. A lot of controversy and a lot of uh, rebuttal by the players too. It's, it's quite an interesting first couple of days of the Australian Open in the world of tennis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I was up. Uh, I didn't stay up quite as late as you did, although you're more of a night owl than I am, anyway. But uh, I did stay up till around midnight last night watching a little bit of Aussie Open. I set the old. Uh, Digital recorder up for overnight and woke up this morning and watched the rest of it uh, this morning. So lots of tennis to absorb over the next couple weeks. And as you said, you can uh, listen to our breakdown. I think probably we'll have a show on Wednesday again, a show next weekend sometime. And then uh, we'll break down the quarterfinals, semifinals and finals after that. So uh, lots of tennis action on game set podcast over the next few weeks. But uh, this is Five Rings, and uh, we're also going to focus in on the match-fixing allegations on the show today. And that will be the, the more serious uh, topic, talking point that we're going to have in the, the majority of the show. we will also going to have a little bit of a fun topic today, too. Uh, Kevin and I, we decided that uh, we're going to have some um, – some uh, time machine dreaming. I do this podcast in front of a TARDIS every day, so you'll know where I come from. Kevin doesn't know what a TARDIS is, I don't think, but that's uh, the time.
0: But I know where you come from too. I, I, I know the circles. I know the doctor. I know.
1: All right, so there you go Uh, So we're going to go take our time machine And our time machine is a very specific one It can take us back to watch three Olympic events Only one of which can be Canadian focused So uh, Kevin and I are each going to list Our three historical Olympic events That we are going to take our time machine back To watch in our middle segment And in our final segment We are going to talk a little bit about LA's commitment to running a privately funded games entirely And whether we think that's realistic Whether we think that's a good idea any thoughts, Kevin, before we go to the break?
0: Very interesting lineup and a very diverse. Quite a, the backbone in the history and the need for five rings is right there. Game. Set. Podcast. On the Sports Podcasting Network.
1: You seem at home on the court.
0: Let's say that I've played a role.
1: And welcome back. Kevin, uh, lots of news in the world of tennis leading into the Australian Open uh, this week. The unfortunate thing is a lot of it's been pretty negative in the sense of this match-fixing allegations that came forward. It's not surprised to anyone who's followed the world of match-fixing that tennis would be a sport that gets implicated in this. But uh, certainly not great timing, although it's probably perfect timing if you're trying to get attention for it. And I suspect that's why it came out when it did. Um you read some articles that sort of summarize this pretty well, so I'm just going to throw to you now, and Kevin, if you could just sort of lay the land for us on what exactly is being accused here when we're talking about the match-fixing scandal that is now beginning to uh, to uh, go over the world of tennis.
0: BBC BuzzFeed published yesterday a uh, uh, very in, deep, uh, in that article with... Uh, saying allegation, they found proof, and they found uh, some evidence of match-fixing. And there's uh, two questions we're going to try to answer right now with that BBC articles. There's the main one, and they created a lot of, uh, of uh, side articles uh, giving more bullet points and more uh, Lehman's term, what match-fixing and what are the evidence that they found. So we'll start with what are the allegations. Uh, 16 tennis players who were ranked in the world's top 50 were repeatedly flagged to anti-corruption body the tennis integrity unit over a decade. Second one. There were suspicions those 16 players intentionally threw in quotation marks matches. All of the players as a third one, all of the players including winners of grand slam titles were allowed to continue competing. Fourth one betting syndicates in Russia and Italy made huge sums from matches thought to be fixed, including three at Wimbledon. And the last allegations, 28 players involved in those matches should be investigated, but findings were never followed up, a confidential report said. So those, basically, Dwayne, are the allegations that the BBC and the news site BuzzFeed uh, obtained in secret files and that published yesterday.
1: Yeah, look... I've had the opportunity uh, a couple times now of, of interviewing Declan Hill, uh, who of course wrote the Fix, the the famous uh, soccer match-fixing book, and and he talked about tennis fixing a lot at that point and how prevalent it was uh, in that world. So this doesn't surprise me at all that this stuff would get him come out. Tennis is in many ways the most fixable of sports that exists and I think that there is almost a culture that accepts it and this sort of speaks to that to me Kevin because they knew that these people had fixed these games but yet they allowed them to continue to compete which tells me that there's a level of acceptance within tennis to to the idea that you might throw a game here and there and And just just before
0: we go there I'll just explain what is match fiction and how does it work it will really go uh, well, with what we're going about to say now. The Gallaudet is that players took money to intentionally lose all or Part. That's the the most important thing between you and me, Dwayne, is part of matches so that gamblers were able to win bets. Um, in some cases, investigators thought they saw a pattern where a player would win the first set of the match and get slightly ahead in the second, meaning the odds would move in their favor. At this point, when winnings would be maximized, the corrupt gamblers would place a bet on the other player. The fixing player would then lose the remaining sets. In other cases, players might fix part of a match, even if they won overall, for example... By losing just a second set,
1: yeah exactly it's spot fixing is how they how they call that and and there's this acceptance that spot fixing isn't as dangerous as match fixing, and I'll explain from my perspective why that's not the case in a minute, but that's exactly what you're saying. Imagine this. We'll play, put this in, in terms that, that are easily understood. Imagine you are a top 20 player in the world and you are playing a player that's ranked 300th in the world. You're likely going to win that match. You're going to win that match 99 times out of 100 on, your own, on its own accord, right? You win the first set. You're in the second set. You get up a break. There's such a thing as live in-play yeah, betting that exists out there. The odds will move astronomically in favor of the other person, of the, that you, of the favorite, winning that set. So you'll get a money line uh, for the person behind by the breakpoint and a setback that's much lower ranked of probably something like 500. Like you'll get like five to yeah, one five, odds.
0: Five to one on easily. For example, three three to nothing in the set, you're probably going to be 10 to one to, to, to win that set.
1: So at that point, the top ranked player lays down fully confident that they can turn it back on in the third set and still continue on in the tournament. So in their mind, no harm, no foul. And you know
0: what? Sorry, we really saw that happen in more, more, not more, but in Grand Slams where you need to win three sets. If you won the first two, you can't allow yourself to lose one without necessarily jeopardizing your chance of winning because you still need to win one while the opponent has to win two. So we do see that.
1: And you could even imagine a scenario where, uh, a fixer would have a relationship with uh, with a tennis player where there would be a signal from the court. Maybe it's he drops his uh, racket. Maybe he calls a injury timeout at a certain point. Maybe he uh, calls a bathroom timeout at a certain point. Calls and a medical the, timeout. Just yeah, that anything. is the indication to the fixer that the fix is on and allows them to then – Get the news out to to put the bet forward because these bets are instant and they're 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 not very difficult or not very easy to to turn around at the time. It's very difficult to track these things. You have to find patterns, and I suspect the fixers are smart about this too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and you they're see not going to try. And a, get oh, sorry. They're not going to try and keep the patterns like they're losing the third game of every set. It's not something that's going to continue very often because they well pick that up with the with, you know, their analysis. Right. The the gambling houses.
0: Yeah. And in instant betting, you get your result instantly as well. So it's uh, cashing out instantly. Yes, after the fact, it's possible to track it down and to, to identify and pinpoint who did it. But by that point, the winnings are probably already spent. So, yeah, you're going to catch a guy. It's going to be hard to prove everything and to follow that money trail because there's obviously always a money trail in some sort because we're talking about online, usually online betting, which means online transactions, which usually means there's a paper trace or an online trace. So that's what we see a lot of time, but because it's instant, the, the winnings are like PayPal, boom, boom, cash out in my bank account. It's done, and I can spend them in 20, 20 minutes. It is very, very hard to pinpoint and to identify a red flag as it's going on. After the fact, when there's investigations, yes, it's one thing. But as it's going on, it's so hard. Like you're saying, if you just see the signal from the your uh, alleged friend on TV who says, okay, I'm going to break my racket no matter what if I lose at 3 nothing." something and yeah so it's a, it's very difficult to to be able to do something about it in the instant
1: yeah and and the other part of it the problem too is in terms of enforcement you're looking at a lot of these the countries that host these gambling sites that a lot of these they're either illegal gambling anyway and it's all run you know, by the by, organized crime. So that's going to be difficult in its own accord to track down and and to enforce because these are people that are operating outside of the law anyway. Or if they are using legal houses or quasi-legal houses to bet, they're going to often be housed, uh, like the servers are going to be housed in places where they don't have a lot of authority to go in and get them. So really the only way to combat this, Kevin, in my mind, is to go after the players that are involved hard and make it so that there's a one-and-out kind of policy that if you're caught match-fixing and you know what? There are ways that you can pretty easily prove it in terms of, of if the betting spikes in a particular point and it doesn't make any sense. If it quacks like a duck, it's a duck, right?
0: Absolutely. It would be a deterrent, Dwayne. If you if you really are throwing the hammer, you, you really make – it's a guillotine. You have a suspicions of partaking some sort of fixing points, spot fixing, match fixing. You're suspended until the, the investigation is going – and definitely, that's for sure. And uh, there's only two ways it can end. You're either cleared and of everything or you're banned for life. I think that's the way to do it because it's a deterrent. Yeah, it's going to hurt. Yeah, people will be surprised if it's a big name and it happens. But it's what you need to do. It's what it needs to happen. Make an example. Do people talk about betting on baseball? Look at Pete Rose. Yeah, exactly. It's a deterrent. So it, it could be interesting what happens.
1: Yeah, it, The other problem we get into is I think sometimes the sports themselves are reluctant to be that heavy on it because they don't want to draw attention to the fact that maybe some of their games haven't been on the up and up. The thing about tennis though, Kevin is that there's even take the gambling aspect at a time. There's lots of times you see players lie down in a tennis match. Like if you're in a three set match and it's 90 degrees Fahrenheit out and you're down two breaks in the third set and you're, but you're up two sets, you're probably just going to, you're gonna essentially throw the rest of those games to lose love in that set to save your energy yeah. up, and that's an accepted part of strategy, right? So it becomes complicated.
0: You might be explaining it as, "Yeah, I'm gonna I was gonna save energy," or might even in the press conference after, but yes, in the third, things were not going my way. I was trying to conserve energy, not exert myself, not run after the ball uh, for nothing." Yeah, and uh, you're right; it could be so. It's. it's we're all talking about subjective things, too. It's hard to pinpoint and analyze it and to see it objectively when it's uh, an opinion versus not. What if the player says, well, uh, I wasn't feeling good. I had cramps that, uh, that said that's why uh, even though I was winning, I lost it. You know, yeah. there's a lot of things that can be explained. That it, that's why it's hard to, to, to pinpoint that problem, too.
1: Yeah, and this is where you need to cooperate with the legal gambling houses. And and it's actually – this ties into the final point I want to make on this, and that is there was some criticism this week – sorry, this yesterday uh, when the Australian Open still maintained some gambling sponsorships and advertisements around that, uh, particularly in Australia. They they got a lot of flack considering this story. Why should you still be advertising for gambling? But I think – and this is a difficult thing for people to understand is that the best ally to combat match fixing are legal gambling houses they don't want the games fixed because that's not how they make their money that's you know having their industry called into question is not going to benefit them. Certainly having uh fixers know that the fix is in, and when money off them that's not really you know earned is certainly not going to help them so if you cooperate with legal houses to make sure that they are working with you to report to you any weirdness that's happening in the numbers in the bets in the spikes if there's a spike on a you can bet on single points in tennis right yeah. and there's probably a statistical number that you can figure out what the average bet is on any single point and if it spikes off one in, in particular then you know something's weird
0: why, and you need not? it should be like the stock market if it if there's something where a red flag reds up it stops the betting and it cancels the betting for that match
1: period yeah instantly, Boom. like some like, way to work and, it in. An
0: algorithm, like an, an actual algorithm, a computer algorithm that would see that and it would just stop it. There's a red flag and guess what? There'll be probably kinks at that at the beginning, but it's worth it at the end to make sure that it's on the up and up, like you say.
1: Yeah, so that's uh, that's that's how you combat that. All right, uh, this obviously is a story that's going to continue to have legs and well, in terms of, uh, sorry, just, Kevin, go ahead.
0: The, the comment of uh, Novak Djokovic, uh, which uh, they have, a lot of players have come out today. So he, Djokovic played down the allegation. I'm just gonna say, uh, his quote, he says it's just speculation. He's like those fives indicate that it's uh, it was real, but it's just speculations. He Djokovic said it's not as big as people are saying. He he believes that it's a a little over exaggerated. But uh, if the evidence and there if the evidence and the allegations turn out to be actual proof and truth. 16 players in the top 50. It's it's quite quite a big percentage of uh, corrupt high level athletes. So uh, even though Novak Djokovic downplays the allegations, it's very disconcerting.
1: Yeah, and I'll say this: if, six, if uh, 16 players in the top 50 are alleged to be involved in this, I would hate to see what the numbers in the you know three to five hundred range are. Because if you're talking about <laughs> you bet on tur- small little tournaments all over the world, and if you made you know, if you're making fifty thousand dollars in prize money and okay. barely getting by because you have to spend money to travel to all these tournaments, and someone comes up to you and says you're going to lo- lose love, love today, and I'm going to pay you forty grand, it's really hard to hard to ignore that kind of a uh, offer, isn't it?
0: You'd be like, yes, and uh, what about next week? What am I doing for you next week?
1: Yeah, it, so exactly. And the,
0: or the other thing is. If they find that, let's go really into the conspiracy, but it goes really like in the movie scenario, but we've seen it happen with actual players that we know their name, <coughs> Davidenko. <coughs> if you have vices and some people in the betting syndicates like the Russian and Italian that we talked about earlier, well, if they figure out that you really like women or that you really like gambling, and at the end of the day, you have a debt to them, guess what you're going to have to do? Exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's a very, very complex issue.
1: Yeah. I feel that we're repeating this, we're talking this will be the final point, and we'll move on to the more the on the on the court stuff. But a lot of people dismiss match or spot fixing as, as not being as as bad as match fixing. And I said that I would get back to this earlier on. The reason it is as bad is exactly what Kevin's just alluding to. It only takes one mistake. Let's say that you are supposed to blow set three, but something happens, your opponent's incompetent or whatever, and it doesn't work out for you. Then not only didn't you get the 10 grand or the 20 grand or the 50 grand or whatever you were promised, you might owe that gambler that, and maybe you don't have it. Maybe you don't have it because the reason you originally a, a, agreed to be part of this whole thing is because you you like to spend the money on you know a fast life, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, instead of, of, uh, you know, they're going to say, well, next, you're going to make it up for us, but we're going to make sure that you make it up for us. You're losing your next match. Not blowing three points in the second set. You're just going to blow it all because, you know, the longer uh, the the fix is on, the bigger the fix is in terms of a a full match versus a single game, the less likely it is, hooded there is, that you're going to mess that up, right? So that's why it's a slippery slope from spot fixing to full match fixing.
0: No, yeah, it's just... Do you really want to put the jeopardy of the sport, the perception of your sport, to be true and honest by having spot fixing to make a uh, considerable amount of money where you're actually jeopardizing the sport as a whole? Yeah, it's a it's quite complex issue, but not just that. It's it's an issue that I think we need to uh, be honest with ourselves and look at it in almost every sport and basically every walks of life. All right.
1: Let's move on to the on the on the like I said the on the court stuff. It's only been one day. Uh, you saw Serena last night. She she looked like she didn't have much rust. Kevin.
0: Oh no, no rust at all. She looked dominant, powerful, in good spirit, and very interesting in her uh, post match. She was uh, with Chris Everett, so her post match commentary. But she was actually at the actual desk, so it was uh, maybe an hour after a match. She was talking about how, as uh, she for her, there's no pressure this year. It, it, every match it could be her last as she had nothing to worry about 21 grand slam titles in her career a record that will probably never be broken in the history of tennis i can't see uh, in the foreseeable future at least play with that amount uh, that dominance but uh, for her every match is a bonus she could retire tomorrow and have fulfilled all her just not just dreams but all her goals all her dreams all her uh, everything she ever wanted to achieve on a tennis court she did so, she could retire tomorrow and it would not be an afterthought at all to come back and to try to get what she didn't get because she did it all. So, she does want to go to Rio this year. It is something that interests her to, to win this in Rio, in the setting, and the Olympic. It's, it's something special. But for her, it's all bonuses. So, there's no pressure for her. So, she kind of like she's really loose. She plays loose and free. And in all her shows, Dwayne. we always talk about when an athlete plays loose and free, it's a dangerous type of athlete.
1: Yeah, I, I I don't know offhand. Is she playing doubles with her sister at the Olympics?
0: That would be very interesting. But uh, I don't know if Venus can cut it anymore at that level. But probably in doubles, yeah. Uh, I w- yeah. I would I would guess she, if not with her sister, at least with somebody else probably.
1: Yeah, they'd have to qualify. And so I, I don't know whether the U.S. tennis Federation would do something like that, but that might be something that motivates her or to play like they don't have to qualify to play in Wimbledon or something like that. So maybe that is what will extend her career is to work with her sister and to, to do stuff like that and play doubles and, and exhibitions and play a limited schedule because it is clear that, uh, that Serena gets bored sometimes, I think. Um, that's fine, though. I yeah. think I might get bored, too, if I was that dominant. So we'll, <laughs> we'll watch it. Um, I just as, – as we're reporting this, uh, Jeannie Bouchard was on my TV behind me uh, in, in my studio here uh, in a gray kind of dumpy sweatshirt and a hat on, looking not very glamorous. And I say that because it seems like Jeannie Bouchard is trying to fly a little under the radar right now. Did uh, you- she did –
0: yeah, just, she got uh, a win
1: last night is all I was going to say. Yeah, go ahead, Kevin.
0: And after the match where uh, her opponent was eliminated, was signing an autograph, throwing things in there, Jeannie was focused. She barely looked at the crowd. She, tried to th- she threw a towel in the crowd, but it didn't manage to get over it. So what she did, she just looked at on the court, took the towel the back to the actual fans, threw it back in the crowd, this time successfully— and just barely waved and really kept her focus. It seems like she's on a mission. It seems like for her, she's trying to be a low profile. But uh, with the type of ambition that we know she has inside her, I think she realizes that uh, the spotlight, the glamour is really fun. It's really important in the type of career she has because of marketing and her contract with Nike and all that. But uh, it starts with tennis and it ends with tennis. If, if everything else is an hindrance to your tennis you need to get rid of it. And I think that's what she's trying to do now to at least get her legs under her, if you can uh, accept that uh, expression, to, to make sure that her final in Hobart and now her win in the first round, that it's not the fluke and she wants to get back to where she was and she's really focused on it.
1: Yeah, uh, Pinkies isn't going to have you uh, sell their chicken wings if you uh, aren't winning tennis matches, right? Exactly yeah uh wasnaki was the only big upset of the first day uh she's kind of been going on a bit of a downward spiral so she is now out of the uh I out Maury. of the draw i
0: blame <laughs> ever since they separated she hasn't been the same and guess what he's actually back to where he used to be
1: there you go all right <laughs> uh Men's side: uh, Milosh plays tonight. Uh, Federer won last night. Uh, nothing really uh, major going in there. Uh, on there. Papisul on a Canadian side went out. Uh, it looked like he tweaked something in his back. Uh, unfortunately, there because he was uh, doing pretty well in the first set, but then uh, then just wasn't the same after that. After Hopefully, your injury he can. Time
0: out. He wasn't the same at all. No, he had like a like a. He felt tense when he was playing, and if it's back spasm or just a a, a tweak muscle in your back area, it's one part of do you always use in tennis? So yeah, that would explain why after that injury time, he was not the same player.
1: I think he was also perhaps conserving himself a little bit with the doubles in mind. Um, I would Maybe. suspect. Yeah. yeah he so.
0: doesn't want to, uh, true. Cause, uh, just if you look at it pragmatically, his best chance of having a decent purse at the Australian Open, because it's a big part of tennis, let's not face it. Uh, the expense of having a a professional career in one year, if you don't have the amount of uh, sponsors that you do want, it's quite expensive. We're talking about the six figures, if not uh, 200,000. So for him to get a good purse, well, you can probably like get to the finals or the semis, not easily, but quite, it's very, very possible. So that would be a very decent purse, because in Grand Slam tournaments Even doubles We're talking about Six figures purse For the winners of the doubles So uh, yeah It would be a great achievement For Puss Peace And helps for the rest of your career If you start the year off Dwayne With a big check The amount of pressure That you don't have Or that your accountant Doesn't have To actually uh, make ends meet At the end of the year It's pretty good
1: all right, uh, not much more to say. As I said, first day. Uh, we, uh, if you want to listen to more on Wednesday, I believe we're going to have a game set podcast out for the second edition there. We'll, we'll break down a bit more uh, Milos tonight. I'll be interested to watch that. Hopefully he can keep rolling after uh, his Brisbane win and uh, keep going in Melbourne because uh, we're cheering for him here in Canada. But it uh, should be a fun tournament all around. Uh, the tennis was really great last night. Quite enjoyed watching it, Kevin. Absol-
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Stupid, Mike. My turn. Okay. <laughs> Let's take a break. I think, yeah.
1: Well, it's perfectly simple. Rickon, yeah. A time loop is—it's um, it It's a time loop. One, one passes continually through the same points in time. Passes through the same. Yes. Well, the Axon said they wanted time travel, and now they've got it. And welcome back. Got a TARDIS, Kevin. We got a special sports TARDIS. This TARDIS is going to let us go back and watch three, no more, than three events from the past Olympics. Only one can involve Canada. Kevin, we're going to have a fun little conversation about our historical events that we would love to have been to watch. And uh, hopefully if someone invents that TARDIS, if it's out there, let us know because I'd love to go back and watch them. So uh, well, uh, for,
0: for you, it's a tortoise, Wayne. But for me, I, I know you like the doctor. But in my youth, I liked another type of sci-fi show where to time travel, you actually need to take the Stargate and need to be a solar flare at the same time. So I'll, ta- I'll take the solar flare.
1: All right. So regardless, we're, we're doing time here. We can do. Uh, well, what's the, the, the from the back to the future? What's DeLorean. the car called? We're getting yeah, into
0: the DeLorean today.
1: All right. There you go. Flex um, capacitor. Help us. Basically what Kevin and I are doing is we're highlighting the, our three favorite moments. So we would – not necessarily what we think were the most outstanding one or whatever, but what we'd like to go back and watch for whatever reason because we think that the atmosphere would be incredible or it would have a personal – speak to us on a personal level. So that that's our fun topic for today. Um, I'll start, Kevin, and, and I says as I said, I was going to limit this to, th- to one Canadian moment each because I could probably give you 15 <laughs> or 50 Canadian moments that I'd love to go see, including like all of Vancouver again. I want to um, go see –
0: See Denis Bradard win the gold medal in nineteen fifty with a yellow jersey for Canada.
1: There you go, exactly. Like there's lots of stuff we could do there. So we're limited to one Canadian moment and, and two international moments As I said, I'm not going to pick all of Vancouver because I couldn't like limit it to one thing. Maybe the gold medal hockey game, I suppose, if that were what I was going to do. But that's not what my selection is. And I'll start with my Canadian pick, Kevin, and then I'll let you go with your Canadian pick. I want to go back to Atlanta, and I think I've talked about this before on this show um, in in different contexts. It's the event that I really, really loved from the Atlanta Games, and that's of course Donovan Bailey winning the 100 meter. But the other, the four by one, is what I loved the most. And I think I'm not alone because when they Pan Am games were here in Toronto. The last part when they lit the flame was actually that four by one hundred meter team. It was it was pre-recorded. It was very weird. But at any rate, they the four members of the four by one uh, you know, ran around with the flame for the final segment, handed it to Donovan Bailey, who allegedly was on top of the CN Tower and skydove into the it was very weird. But anyway, that's how they lit the flame. Um, the reason I love this is because it was just such a It's so Canadian, really. It really is Canadian because the Americans hadn't lost in this. And all week leading into this, there was all this talk about whether they were going to get Carl Lewis, his record-breaking gold medal. And no one was talking in the American networks and in the American coverage about even the possibility that the Americans would lose this event despite the fact that Canada was the defending world champions and had the 100-meter gold medalist as their anchor leg. So us Canadians – as we're apt to do when the Americans are ignoring us, we just had this slow burn going all week. It's like the slow burn is the only way to say it. We get more and more pissed as the week went on that no one was giving this team any respect. So when Donovan Bailey turned that final corner (laughs) in the heart of the American South, clearly about to win the gold medal, sticking it right to our rivals to ourselves it was just a great canadian moment as a sports fan in all the ways that it's both good and bad as a sports fan but it's good bad if you know what i mean we just hands in the air and i would love to have been in that stadium with a canadian flag just going suck it <laughs> <laughs> as they turn that corner yeah, and then, 1996 that's
0: very, It's the right thing to say
1: Yeah, not very sportsmanlike of me, but I don't really care. It was one of those moments. And I've told the story of how I experienced it. I was actually at summer camp. as I was working at summer camp as a program director, and we had all of the kids in the dining hall. So I was in this – dining hall full of like hyped up on sugar children watching Canada win a gold medal who were screaming as we turned that final corner. So it has a great soft spot in my heart as an Olympic mystery. So that, that's my time machine number one, my Canadian time machine. I'm going back to stick it to the Americans in Atlanta when in the four by 100 meter relay. Kevin, what, what's your Canadian moment? Why,
0: would, why did you start with this? You should have finished with this because now how do you want me to top this? How, should, how can I follow this? I don't like know. You, you drop the mic on the first one. How am I supposed Uh, to follow this? (laughs) All right. Mine (laughs) is a gold medal. uh, The first hockey gold medal for Canada in 50 years when a son did the same exploit as his father did 50 years after. Uh, Martel Brada the goalkeeper from the Canada team with the pass, the famous pass. One of the probably the famous move that wasn't a move by Marion Lemieux in his career where That dummy pass, the first maybe ever dummy pass in hockey or the first famous one where he let that puck go to Carrier, Carrier buries it and Canada wins gold. In 2002, Salt Lake City, I would want to be there for two reasons. To make sure that that Alunni goes into the ice for sure and to see the gold medal game. Uh, The two great moments in the the lore, the history of hockey in Canada and uh, we experienced it on our TV screens I would just love to be there.
1: I actually touched the Lucky Looney once. Did you know that, Kevin? You went to the Hall of Fame? Touched? Yeah. yeah. yeah it was, they had it in the Hall of Fame. And you you it, could, you, touch could it, actually, yeah. you could actually touch it, um, which tells you everything. You know, for those who don't know, I, American or international listeners, they buried a looney, a Canadian dollar, in the middle of the ice hockey rink. That They've done it every Olympic every, since. Every
0: but, Olympic since, even in Torino and everywhere now.
1: So, yeah. yeah, because the Canadian always makes the ice because they're the okay. best ice makers in the world. Yeah, because we're um, Canadian. Although, yeah, we'll see. Anyway, they uh, that would be certainly a good one. And one of my favorite things about that Kevin is, is the fact that the crowd. There was a lot of Canadians that like drove from the Prairie Provinces overnight to, and like bought scalp tickets to get into that game. Yeah, God knows how much they spent. But there was there was a significant Canadian pe- uh, uh, presence in the arena that day, um, and they all started singing "Oh Canada," and they perfectly timed it so it ended as the final second rolled off. And I've never quite understood how they did that. So I would enjoy being in the stands singing "Oh Canada" as the uh, as the uh, time wore off. There's there's some great stories about Canada. There's a, one Canadian story I remember. This guy just in Saskatchewan or something just got in his car and drove, had no ticket, had no ability to get a ticket, whatever. And just st- stood there as a Canadian, just wanted to be around the arena. And it was like Mark Messier or someone like was there, and one of the Canadian hockey player and saw him and asked him what he was doing, and he told the story. And you know, about an hour later, someone came out and handed him a ticket that they had they acquired for them one of the players. So there's a lot of good stories around that game, nice. so that would certainly be a fun, fun. Back thing then, Mike
0: do. Missy was playing. Just for so people to know. Was he? Was yeah. he? 2003? I don't. I think, it was. I think he actually. Don't, don't yeah, know if it was he was retired. Yeah, it was, I yeah, he was retired. Like retired yeah.
1: I think it was Messy though. That he was around just watching it. And he met this player. I'd have like. Sorry if I'm wrong with this, but it's a player f- met this guy that had just driven down because he just wanted to be close to the arena, and you know he was going to go to a bar or something and watch it. And and oh. you know they had a conversation. Didn't ask for it or anything like that. Yeah, they just showed up an hour later with a ticket for him. So that's the, a nice the story thing too. with the
0: time machine. We could go make sure who it was. We could actually go yeah. witness that story.
1: Exactly. uh, Yeah, I actually heard that from the horse's mouth too. So I don't think that that's a wives' tale, but that's something that happened anyway. So my – That's our Canadian moments out of the way. So we'll go with uh, my first international moment, and I'm going to go back to an Olympics that I really enjoyed a great deal, uh, even though they were on in the middle of the night. Uh, They're one of my favorite Olympics ever. Partly, I think because they were on in the middle of the night, and (laughs) I was, you know, I turned my schedule completely over. I I was at an age when it was still kind of like appropriate to be kind of a bum watching the Olympics for 24 seven. Now I'm just the weird guy doing it, but it's
0: not. It's not. It's found of the pod, you saying now?
1: Yeah, well, Damn. we'll see this summer. <laughs>
0: yeah, People got might... their priorities wrong.
1: Yeah, I Not, usually take No, we, we are. Around. We
0: don't. They do.
1: Yeah, exactly. But this, at this time anyway, it was still kind of quirky and cute that I was doing it. So at any rate, I'm talking about the Sydney Olympics. And the most famous moment of the Sydney Games was Kathy Freeman's 400-meter winning a run. Kathy uh, Freeman had, was such an important figure for the Australians, you know, the Aboriginal, uh, bringing the the white and the Aboriginal people together, cheering for one common cause. There hadn't always been a great history there. You all kind of know that, that history now, but it was such a phenomenal moment from both, you know, an Australian moment, an Australian historical moment. And I know a few Aussies that still talk in glowing terms about this, but it also just was a great Olympic moment. When she turned the final corner and the roar of that stadium and it was such a great two weeks for Australia, too. They just kept winning and winning. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. We all still have that in our head, right? Because they were so successful in those games. And that was just the crowning achievement of the entire Games for a nation. And it really is what makes the Olympics special is that those final moments. So I would have loved to have been in that stadium to to witness that, Kevin. No,
0: exactly. And uh, we talk a lot about excellence and we talk a lot about great achievement in sports here on the Five Rings podcast over the history of this show Rarely do we have a chance to talk about perfection, Dwayne. And uh, seeing that time machine there, seeing the Dalurian and Doc in the backseat, I am actually want to see perfection. I'm going back to my own city, 1976, between Ponchos and Patchouli, we're going to see Nadia have have the first perfect score in gymnastics with a 10 in Montreal. And I would just love to see not just that, but uh, all the Olympic activities here in my own city to see why we spent that such a big amount of money on those games. I would just love to see it in action, to see the big o not finished, all those things, I would just love to see it. So uh, for that reason, 1976, here I come.
1: Fair enough. And, uh, you know, look, if I could pick in general the two weeks, if I could get a time machine that would take me back to two two two-week periods, uh, I think Calgary and Montreal, or sorry, Calgary maybe two, the the 88 88? Olympics. Yeah, absolutely. We don't necessarily talk about the 88 Olympics as much. There's a lot of great memories from that, and I'm old enough to remember them too, but Vancouver sort of dwarfs it because, well, we won in Vancouver.
0: I had a Calgary toque. I was four years old, but I had that toque for maybe 10 years. I just loved that logo. I just, uh, it's it's a great, you're right, we don't talk about it enough.
1: Uh, Elizabeth Manning was the, uh, the the figure skater was probably Canada's top moment in that game. So she won a silver medal. Um and it was just she probably deserved the gold medal too, it, you know. Figure skating is so subjective, especially back then. It was very subjective, and she just blew the blew the roof off the place, the Saddledome, the then new Saddledome. They're looking to build a new one. Talking about making yourself feel old. There's lots of talk in Calgary that they need to build a new building now. But at any rate, she blew the roof off the Saddledome, uh, and, and probably could have won the gold medal in any other game. But back then they used to have a uh, wit one, kind of, you know, wit, uh Vit won the gold medal and she won it based on the uh, figures. You know how they used to have to do the figures before they did the uh, short and the long uh, platform in figure skating? They yep. had this competition where they used to like skate eights and no one watched it. It was boring as hell. They eliminated that. Um, had that not been involved, she would have won the gold medal and Canada would have had its first gold medal in, on home soil way back in 88. But anyway, that's, that's not where I'm going back to, but uh, we, we got it off track. Um, Montreal, yeah, it's before my time to remember as well. Yeah, before mine too. <laughs> well, well before yours. Yes. Well before mine. <laughs> um, but I, I certainly would enjoy. I've seen the, the video, and I know that my grandparents went to it, and I've heard stories from that. So it certainly would be exciting just to even see Canada back then, um, see Montreal back then in a very interesting time in our history. Would be certainly something that we would uh, uh, both, I think, enjoy. So uh, that's a good choice, Kevin. Um, my my third. I'm going to go since i kind of stuck it to the americans in my canadian moment um and that is the canadian in me i am going to uh to give back a little bit and watch a very famous american moment for my uh, my final one and it's maybe the most famous winter olympic moment of all time would you think that that's probably the case kevin
0: here in north america or in the us perspective yeah for sure it's uh, the one that you they look with the biggest rose-colored glasses, the one that it's hyped and remembered with the fondest memories, yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm, of course, talking about the 1980 Miracle on Ice and it... (laughs) It's just I'm a hockey fan, and it's such a hockey historical moment. And I, I, I would be curious to see what non hockey fans in Europe would think of this moment. But it, it is, you know, it was voted Sports Illustrated's uh, biggest uh, sporting story of the 20th century. Um, you know, crazy stuff like that. So it's just to be a part of something that famous. And, and Lake Placid, too, if you've ever been, is tiny. It's one of the last games that were held in sort of resort towns, and that arena is. Minuscule. Like it you can't even comprehend how small it is and it was just a different time in the Olympics too. It was funny. I, I was telling Kevin off air. Uh, one of the reasons this idea for a story popped in my head is I was back home with my parents at Christmas time of course and I was watching the movie Miracle with my dad. Miracle is the story of the 1980 Olympics. It's basically a Herb Brooks, the coach's biopic. It's what it is. But yeah. alas, I, I was watching this and at the end of that, I went, I wonder if the game is on YouTube and it is. If you do search it out, like you know, 1980 Miracle on Ice full game, it's there. You can watch the entire thing start to finish. And one of the things that's really interesting about that, and it just sort of speaks to how quaint it was back then, the Winter Olympics, is it wasn't shot live. It, well, it was shot live, but it wasn't aired live. So they, they come to Lake Placid, and you see all these drunk people behind the live shot and the thing. And they're all, of course, celebrating this win and they had to pretend that they didn't know who won the game or they did know. They didn't pretend they didn't know. They just couldn't tell you who won because they t- decided to then show the game on tape delay after that. And that's how the Olympics were filmed in their entirety back then in the United States where this game was shown. I mean there's still a lot of tape delay, which we'll talk about a lot when we get into the yeah. summer. But just the whole quaintness of it, this, just to be in there and I just saw all these you know, old-school 1970s – because it was 1980, but it was basically the 1970s still, you know, right? It was only two months in. The old toques and the kind of the mustaches and the very 70s styles there. And it just looked like it was kind of a fun party that night too. So that's kind of why I want to go back to Lake Placid for to watch what is a very historical moment. And I'd also... To to make this non-American, I would love to watch that Soviet team at their peak play. Uh, as a hockey hockey guy, um, that would just be something that's phenomenal. I you know I remember watching them on TV probably into eighty eight and and so on in the Canada Cups, but to have a chance to see them live would have been phenomenal.
0: Yeah, there there's thousands of moments or choices or. Uh, games, performances, medals I would have loved to go see and choose as my third one. But it's so difficult to pinpoint and choose one when we're only three. So I went with my personal history. What did I would like to see? What what did I experience when I was a kid that would make me want to see something? And we go back to nineteen ninety two in Albertville, first of all, one of the games that I like the most when you were talking about resort towns, it's one of the last ones as well in Albertville in France. And for me Uh, What I liked about it, it's it's not a Canadian story. Well, it is, but uh, because it competed for France, uh, it's a French story as well. Uh, The Paul and Isabelle Duchesne figure skating uh, gods back then. Basically, they were the most famous in the world. Competed for Canada, but eventually, a uh, uh, change of coaches and uh, France basically gave them a golden bridge that they could not refuse. And they competed for for, the, for France and had great moments, uh, some great deception, some uh, uh, great stories. But uh, the fact is, I love that story because I was an extra in the movie of their life, and <laughs> I would love to go in Albertville in 1992 to see if the producers got it right, to see if the director got the feel of 1992 and Albertville right. And uh, quite frankly, I want to see if there's a guy looking like me in the stands because that's what I was like. Anyways, that would be really fun.
1: There you go, Kevin. The movie star wants to go back. They were a great pair. I mean, in terms of you know, again, Kevin and I talked about this a lot when we started this with Sochi. We're not figure skating guys per se, Well, we do talk
0: a lot about it. Often, if you look at all the vibe right now,
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of figure skating talk on this. But certainly, I can appreciate how successful they were. We talk about a lot about ice dance too, because ice dance was yeah. a big was a big topic in Sochi, wasn't it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, so the, I, the Ice Damp podcast to be out on the Sports Podcasting Network uh, soon. Um,
0: <laughs> it's going to be called Blades of Steel. Come on, come on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, dear. yeah, Blades
0: of Steel on the Sports Podcasting Network.
1: All right. Hope you enjoyed reminiscing. I think people like it when we talk about historical moments, and that's, I think, what our wheelhouse is. I can go back into many... Many parts of my memory bank or half of my mind, I think, is made up of either hockey, soccer or Olympic memories, which is probably explains a lot about my personality otherwise. So I do enjoy tapping into them sometimes. But those are the three I could have listed like 10 more off the top of my head. But, you know, I obviously I'd like to I would go back to see Ben, too. I'd go back to see yeah. the Ben Johnson win. and to um, see
0: it, Look at the locker rooms of Carl and all the other guys.
1: Yeah, well, that's know, a why not? Topic. Tell me, yeah, fly behind the wall, (laughs) see if the testing was on the up and up. It's a different topic altogether. Or maybe Uh,
0: uh, go back there and then create Google in like 1998. So everything is different.
1: Or the 84 games, I that was the games that really hooked me. Of course, so I'd want to be at the pool to watch Alex Bauman win his gold medals, To watch Victor Davis, who's a personal hero of mine from a child, my childhood as well. I'd love to see him win his gold medal. There's there's lots of stuff I'd go back for, but uh, go back certainly to see I Jean-Luc think
0: Jean-Luc Brassard win a double in 1994. That would be awesome. Yeah,
1: you know? it's funny how I, most of my my favorites are are summer related. That's just my personality. I've always and, preferred and summer. Mine all
0: winter basically.
1: Yeah, all right. Uh, let's take the break now, and uh, we could we'll do we'll probably spin this topic in different ways in the future. Don't you worry. But for today, then we'll leave it at that, and uh, we'll come back and we'll uh, talk a little bit about uh, LA's attempt to get a third games. I am proud to announce that SBN is launching the most prestigious Hall of Fame in the world of niche podcasting. The SPN Sports Hall of Fame. Not just one sport, Sports Hall of Fame for all of the world of sports. We have the one and only Niche Podcast Hall of Fame that everyone needs to follow and listen to and respect as the authority in Niche Podcasting Hall of Fame nominations in the world of sport all time. Kevin.
0: I have tears coming down my cheeks right now, Dwayne. It's a great moment for SPN, a Hall of Fame. Something that, for me, has a great meaning, if none whatsoever. Because it's just fun to talk about who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, who deserves to, to do it. And we decided to include you, the listener, in it. Yeah, you have a little homework to do. Every patreoners, every supporter of this show on patreon.com slash Network, has a ballot for the SPN Sports Hall of Fame. For this year, because it's the introduction a year. Send us your five. Any sport, the only only requirement is they have to be retired for five years. But outside of that, all sports, all athletes are fair game.
1: And welcome back. Uh, we did want to touch on one news item. There's not been a ton of news in the bidding world as of late, but L.A. did come uh, ha- come to an agreement with their city council, the L.A. Uh, 2024 group with City Council of L.A. Uh, this past week uh, to – basically it was a promise to not a- ask for public money and a further commitment by the L.A. folks to – bid for these games to, to build these games without begging for money that they, they are going to do it privately is what they're claiming and, and I have some questions about that first off Kevin do you think that they can pull it off do you think you could play a games that were entirely privately funded
0: yeah but but the thing is in the wordage of that uh, the way they announced it yeah they say they're not gonna look for private but for public money but if public money is donated to them they're probably not gonna say no either so uh yes the want to use private money and probably corporate money as the main uh, funding for the games which is fine but they're not going to say no to a tax break you know they're not going to ask for it that's basically what the wordage that they said differently means like in Lehman's term we're not going to ask you for money but if you feel inclined to give us some we're not going to say no either
1: yeah it's interesting though and I think it well affect the bidding a little bit because if you're looking at this as a as a bidding uh, voter, you may be less inclined to vote for LA if they're on this type of commitment. And that it maybe isn't fair and that speaks to some of this reform stuff that the, the IOC is trying to push through to try to make games more affordable to bid for, to try and make games more affordable for cities to host. But at the same time, their they're own worst enemy, their incl- inclination is to go for the big. Like they, t- they took Beijing over El Maddie, even though El Maddie probably made a lot more sense in terms of the, the stuff there and the lesser builds and all that sort of stuff, but Beijing was prettier. That bid was bigger. It was had a lot more going forward in terms of the stuff the IOC likes, which makes me doubt the IOC's full commitment to trying to scale down these games. Now, if LA wants to do something entirely privately funded, I don't think it's realistic that they're going to be able to do – to have the type of money go in that – typically goes into bids because it's the private sector is going to want a return on the investment, right? That's, that's what the private sector does. It, it needs an ROI and it the Olympic games, the return on investment is not definable in money. Often it's definable in that those soft benefits that Kevin and I talked about all the time when we were talking about the, uh, the 2022 bid. Right. And that doesn't help the stock, you know, the, to help the stock go up. Right. Yeah, Exactly. Okay. Um. Look, I, the other part of this too. If you remember the Atlanta games, they were very much uh, corporate driven. There was a lot of advertising I remember Coca
0: Cola and Pepsi, play, like everywhere. I remember the oh, battle. This would have been Coca Cola. <laughs> yeah, but Pepsi trying to get it there, like in TV, because they couldn't get it. Uh, it was just, yeah, it, it was a battlefield, a battle of brands, basically.
1: Yeah, I, and a lot of people that I I was in Atlanta. Not during the games, but I was in Atlanta less than a month after the games were over. Uh, just by happenstance, I happened to travel down there immediately following those games, and there was still advertising everywhere. Like the, you could see the the footage. I think that the uh, parapet, not parapans, the Paralympics had just ended like a week or so after I got there. So there was still a lot of signage. There was still a lot of stuff up like that, and it was it was crazy. Like it was just like. Uh, commercial row and anyone who covered those games back then that were there during them, they talked about how like sort of gross it was, like how over the top the commercialism was. But if you're going to have a completely privately funded games, it's going to be what it's going to be. And that begs the question, is that worth the trade off? Is having someone trying to sell you something every two seconds worth it if it means that it's less of a burden on the overall taxpayer, Kevin? And, And I don't have an answer for that. I don't have a good answer for that anyway.
0: No, it's true because you can, you can basically debate both sides of the story and both sides would seem like they're right. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. because on a one case, the athlete would probably get better funding and the game would probably not be a burden for taxpayers at all. And it would be held a decision of the city council be like, yeah, why not? Well, let's bid for the game. It's not going to be an issue for us. We're not going to pay for it. We're just going to allow corporate money to come into the city people are going to spend city here build stuff here and at the end of the day we're going to benefit from them so yeah so it might be easy easier to convince city councils government uh, different levels of it uh, with that measure but at the end of the day it might take the soul out of the olympics it might take uh, The the viewer experience might be a lot different. The actual fan experience, attending it might be a lot different where you're trying to be, like you say, sell something every two seconds. And uh, basically, uh, there's corporate logos everywhere. But uh, is it worth a trade-off? Yeah, it's a very difficult question to answer.
1: Well, people get funny about stuff like this, and maybe one day we'll have a conversation about uh, jersey sponsorship or, or strip <laughs> sponsorship, and that, that's a big question now. The NHL has talked about adding advertisements to the front of its its jerseys, and a lot of people are freaking out about that. They can't and imagine what it would look like. But then again, Kevin and I, we follow – Soccer. Soccer.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> and it's just normalized at this point in time, and we don't it have an issue weird, with that. weird, but them. there's
0: no sponsors like – how come there's no sponsors? Uh, that team's not good enough to get a sponsor. That's what we think now when a team doesn't have a sponsor.
1: Yeah. And meanwhile, you talk to older fans, though, and they they still maintain this like they they long for a, a time where it was just, you know, the club badge in the the corner of the shirt and the rest of it was just a plain color. And certainly there, there is that feeling out there. Um, we accept that, though, by and large nowadays. Uh, we buy we by and large, accept the, you know, whatever the handyman, whatever bowl and saw and uh College football in the United States, like it's it's weird, or like stadium rights names, like the Pizza Hut Park was a stadium in MLS for a while, which was a funny name stadium, StubHub Stadium in, in L.A. Right? We we BMO Field here in Toronto. I mean, people just call it BMO now, and it'd yeah. be weird if that it's the National Soccer Stadium is the name of the stadium yeah. that TFC plays in, but no one knows that it's BMO Field. And yeah, it's I like s- calling
0: uh, St. James Park. Trying to name it Newcastle uh, Newcastle Stadium. No, they had an uproar. I knew it was from Newcastle. I can't remember the actual companies. They changed it back to St. James Park because it's St. James Park.
1: Yeah, and it, that's a it's a weird thing there. So we accept that, but would we 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 get weird about other things? We get weird about title sponsorship on on sports teams that have been around a long time. We would get weird, I think, if it was the twenty twenty eight Toronto Olympics as sponsored by Royal Bank. People would have an issue with that. And but I do and I have an issue with that instinctively when I think about it. I I don't like it. It makes me feel it makes it it feels wrong. I would I would yeah. You're like, oh you're not sure. It's like there's something putting off with it. Yeah, you're right. If the Montreal Canadiens had Bell on the front of their jersey with the normal colors instead of the Hab logo, I'm not even a Habs fan, and that would seem wrong to me. But it would it would
0: look like a corporate. It would look like a like a beer league jersey because that's what they are.
1: Yeah. Right? And but then again, let me ask you this, and we'll move away from the Olympics for a second. If if the Habs put Bell on their logo, maybe put the little C with the H in the top corner, and then there was Bell in front, and then the average ticket price dropped 20% across the board. Would that be worth it?
0: And they get Sidney Crosby or something? Yeah. It's,
1: again, it, it's the same. I, I don't know. I, I can't debate both
0: sides. I, it's, yeah, it's, it's a fence. And it's hard to choose one side because I understand the benefit. And I understand what it costs, the cost of it too. And I don't know which side is better than the other. The balance is pretty equal right now.
1: Yeah. Anyway, to get back to the Olympics, though, it is interesting that L.A. is making this claim. Um,
0: yeah, you're right. It's claim, a claim.
1: <laughs> it's a claim so far, and that that's the question there. And there would be a lot of cynicism around that. But it does speak to something we've – a theme of this show since the beginning is how difficult it is for cities, particularly in North America, particularly in the West, to get backing unless they, they make claims like this. So we'll see whether this is right. I think if they could pull it off and not lose – you know not be crass about it then everyone's going to win and that's going to be a happy happy scenario and uh hopefully they can do that although i still maintain la is a long shot for these games i suspect they're going uh to somewhere in in europe kevin yeah
0: no yeah absolutely all it's right a, it's
1: um a, it's,
0: a, it's a quite a uh, very very interesting show that we had today Duane, uh, going from uh, match fixing allegations to uh putting sponsorship on the Havs jersey. Yeah, I think we touched it all today.
1: Yeah, and on that note, I think we'll say goodbye. Uh, We'll probably be back next week. We did plan one regular one for next week, and uh, so we'll stick with that. There's lots of curling coming up. Might have a Dwayne Talks curling segment next week. Uh, But in the meantime, Kevin, I'll let you say goodbye.
0: Very big week on the Sports Podcast Network. Two brand-new soccer-related shows are debuting this week with the big one tomorrow night, NASL Nightcap. Look for the two solidos tomorrow with... All the details, and tomorrow night, hardwood, NASL nightcap, and uh, another special surprise this week later on for uh, fans of the Ottawa region. So uh, quite a big week, Dwayne, on the Sports Podcasting Network, and until next time, on your podium, folks. You were listening to SPN, the Sports Podcasting Network. Visit us, sportspodcastingnetwork.com.